0: This message is part of the series, Asking for a Friend. What we all think, but think we shouldn't. The entire series can be found at Fray.com slash asking. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, if not, you can always follow along up here on the screen, or you can pull it up on your phone. We have some in the back. If you didn't bring one, take it with you, you can have it. But we're going to be in Ecclesiastes, and here's why. I'll jump right to the, to the point. Here's the reason why I want to walk through Ecclesiastes with you. The longer I've been in ministry, the longer God has allowed me to do this, serve people in his name, part of that means hearing their secrets and the things that are on their hearts, the more I'm convinced that all of us share a common set of fears and insecurities. We're all scared and questioning and wondering and asking the same kind of stuff, and when it comes to those fears and questions and insecurities, we all assume that no one else could possibly understand why we feel the way we do. Nobody would know the kind of things I think. I don't want them to. We all think that. Nobody could possibly understand me. There have been plenty of things I have thought and wondered over the years, but I've been afraid to ask out of fear that people would think I'm a heretic or an idiot or a liberal or whatever, right? Lots of stuff, lots of chapters of my life I don't want read out loud. Lots of questions and fears on my heart that I don't understand. In the not too distant past of my own life, I hit a phase, I hit a season that was particularly difficult. It's a nice way of saying I was depressed and I hated life. And as God's providence would have it, I picked up the Bible one day and I was thumbing through it and I read the book of Ecclesiastes. Really, if I'm honest, for the first time seriously since college, when I had to read it to get a grade. But I read it, and immediately I hated it, and I hated life all the more. But one thing I noticed that stuck with me about this book that I couldn't stand all of a sudden was how accurately it described those fears and insecurities that I was convinced nobody could possibly understand, deep inside of me. So I read it again and I read it again and I read it again and suddenly I began to realize that Solomon had all those same thoughts I did imagine that another human, Solomon and they happened to be the same types of thoughts I was convinced nobody would understand and the same kind of thoughts I've heard countless times from people that I've been able to minister with and, and, and do life with it's the same type of stuff to make my point here's my outline for today it's not fancy. It's just the outline of chapter one, really. But the outline is this. Chapter one, Solomon says, life is meaningless. Nothing ever changes. We're never satisfied. We're not making any progress. And wisdom is a wound. The truth hurts. Now, does any of that sound like anything that you might have thought before? Qu- bring to the surface questions that you might have asked? If not you, maybe not you, maybe a friend. All right. And this, this prompts questions that you'd like to ask for a friend on understanding some of this stuff. So let's just study Ecclesiastes. Let's just read it together. Let's get through it and, and talk about the stuff that Solomon talks about. But we'll, we'll think of it as one big group therapy project. Ecclesiastes, it's a, it's named after the Greek word for church, ekklesia, same word. The Hebrew word, koaleth. They both mean just a group of people who come together. A group of people who are called together together. Koaleth, uh, the Hebrew term that Solomon uses to refer to himself over and over, it means teacher or really the person who talks to the crowd. Um, so really what we're getting is uh, just somebody talking to a group of people who have came together. Historically, that person has been thought to be King Solomon. Ecclesiastes 1 says, these are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. He never calls himself Solomon, but he did his everything but. He, he makes it clear that's, that's really who we're talking about, and we've with little exception understood this to be King Solomon who uh, wrote three books in the Bible he also wrote uh, Song of Solomon and Proverbs a very wise man uh, and these this book Ecclesiastes really can be thought of as his memoirs at the end of his life he's writing personal memoirs about all that he has experienced which was a lot he was an impressive figure we're going to explore his biography in detail as we go through the book so I'm not going to go too in depth at all about him today I'm going to say he was really rich he was really powerful. He was very smart. He's an impressive guy. He comes from a somewhat crooked family—not not a family with a creen, clean history. Solomon is the product of uh, uh, murder and adultery. He's what came out of that. And so, right, he's got a checkered past. So we can relate to some things in Solomon's life. Other parts of his life, we aspire to to have the kind of money, rich, power, wisdom that Solomon has. So, so he says a lot that I think we want to say, and I'm going to encourage you to lean in and get something. You're not going to walk away without getting something from what Solomon has to say. So let's see what he has to say. Let's jump in. Verse 2 and 3. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. We'll just stop there for a second. At the sound of the bell, Solomon just comes out swinging. He doesn't warm up. He doesn't dance around. He just says, Hi, I'm Solomon. Thanks for reading my book. For my first point, I'd like to tell you there is no point. Everything is meaningless. If you've ever thought life is hard, Solomon is here to say, yes, actually it's harder than you think. But only until you die. Depending on your translation, the word he uses there to talk about everything being meaningless, your Bible will probably say meaningless or vanity or vapor. Uh, He says this 38 times. Either way, it's, it's referring to like a mist. One, one writer has said, it's kind of like when you blow out a candle and that smoke, you try to grab it and put that smoke in your pocket. That's what meaningless vanity is. The smoke when a candle burns out and there's no way you can take it and put it in your pocket and carry it around later. It's just, it's meaningless. It's the opposite. Vanity, this word vanity, meaningless, vapor. It's the opposite of what he uses in the very next verse. When he says, what do people get for all their hard work under the sun? What do people get? Your Bible might say profit. What do people, what, what, is there to, what is the profit? That refers to what's left over. That's what you can take and grab in your hand and put in your pocket and walk away at the end of the day. That's the profit. That's what's left over. Solomon's saying, what do we get for all of this? Everything seems so meaningless. Everything under the sun seems so meaningless. It's, what do we get for it? What do we have to show What do we have to show for all of this? He'll take us back to these three terms, vanity, profit, and under the sun over and over and over. For now, Solomon is just saying out loud what we have all thought at some point or another. Life is hard. Life is frustrating. Life is messy. And sometimes, death feels like the only relief. The only way to get out of this hamster wheel A messy, hard, monotonous, meaningless life is to die. So the crucial question we're going to ask today that I think Solomon is chasing is is there life before death? If you happen to accept let's just pretend for a minute, play along if you don't but just play along. If you accept the Christian teaching of heaven that there is life after death, it's still fair to ask, okay, but what about now? We're not there yet. Is there anything down here of value? Any fun, any joy to be had? Regardless of whether you land on the issue, whether you think there is anything good down here or not, we can all agree that there's plenty of bad down here. Plenty of bad, plenty of sad, plenty of frustrating. That's what Solomon is driving home. And this should come as no surprise to any of us. Our environment, this world, in many ways is designed, that word is intentional, is designed to, to work against us, to cause us friction. doesn't matter what your worldview is. This is self-evident because you know the minute you stop eating right, eating healthy, and exercising, you're going to get fat. If you don't, then the rest of us hate you. The minute you stop maintaining anything, it starts to get unhealthy and decompose. As soon as you're born, you start to die. You can drink bottled water. You can take your vitamins. You can wear your seatbelt. The death rate is still one per person, Nobody gets out of here alive. If you're thinking, man, this is a depressing start, Solomon is not even warmed up yet. He's not even getting started. Our our environment is designed in many ways to work against us, and that shouldn't come as a surprise, especially if you've read your Bible, because the Genesis account of how everything got started tells us that it wasn't always this way. Adam and Eve at first had it pretty good in the garden. They didn't have any real issues at all until they got themselves kicked out and when they got themselves kicked out God frustrated creation and he set it to work against us he injected purposeful tension into the system let me show you how this all works Genesis chapter 3 and the man, to the man he being God, to the man he said since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat the ground is cursed because of you All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Ecclesiastes 1. Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Solomon says, not only is life meaningless and difficult, but things down here on earth are not going to change. Nothing changes. Billions of people have been here before us, and depending on how long it takes for Jesus to come back, billions of people may come after us. Just think of how much has happened in this little magnificent corner of the world here in Turkey. Maybe we're just scratching the surface and there's going to be more Alexanders and Romans and Mongols and Turks. They're going to come after us. Nothing changes. We're all driving in a big circle. We're all seeing the same landmarks. We're waving at the same people. We're getting frustrated over the same stuff. Solomon says, what's there to say about today that we really haven't already said about yesterday? Listen to these lyrics from Paul McCartney. Every morning she takes a bath. She wets her hair, wraps a towel around her as she's heading for the bedroom chair. It's just another day. Slipping into stockings, stepping into shoes, dipping in the pocket of her raincoat. It's just another day. At the office where the papers grow, she takes a break drinks another cup of coffee. She finds it hard to stay awake. It's just another day. Paul McCartney is writing the theme song to our lives. We resist it, we push back, we say, no, no, no. But that's the theme song that could fit any of our lives. You ever run into an old acquaintance, somebody you haven't seen for a long time, and you go to swapping mutual disbelief about how you turned out in life? Hey, I haven't seen you in a decade. Would you ever imagine that I, w- I would wear a suit one day? No, I wouldn't. How about that? Would you ever imagine that I would still be outside of jail and not incarcerated by now? No, look at that. You're wearing a suit. I'm not incarcerated. Here we are, a couple of adults. Why do we, why do, we do that? We have these conversations of genuine surprise about how we ended up, even though everyone else's progression through life is just to be expected. Just a couple days ago, my wife and I were having a conversation how we were in disbelief over the fact that our son Luke is now six. Even though he was born six years ago. We had no reason to doubt his progression. He's a healthy kid. It's only natural that he would get older one day at a time like the rest of the human race. Why do we do that? Why is my suit, my lack of incarceration, my child's progression through life, why is that a genuine sense of surprise and shock to me? Now we're getting at the heart of this book. We're getting at why we struggle so much under the sun. Because the hardest thing for you and I to acknowledge, brace yourself, is that we're not as important as we think. We're not. On average, We're average. Our kids, on their sixth birthday, turn six. One of the things Solomon is trying to convince us of throughout this entire book, listen, is to stop taking ourselves so seriously. Calm down. It's not as serious as you think. It's probably worse than you realize, so be encouraged and calm down. Now, before your triggers go off and you start flipping out to tell me how you're a snowflake, just wait, because this is actually really good news. As a friend of mine would say often, none of us are terminally unique. Let that sink in. You're not terminally unique. Whatever you're facing, whatever you're heading into, it's not new. It's not unique. And even if it feels like it for a little while, give it time and you'll see that it's not. This is a theme that Solomon will encourage us with time and time again but first he wants to make sure we understand how hard we resist that truth we fight back against the inevitable not me I'm different it's not just another day for me I'm unique I'm special the sun doesn't set on me the wind blows where I want it to go and every time I see the ocean it happens to be full we're not content to learn from the mistakes of others we insist on making mistakes ourselves we insist that we're different and this is the point we insist that our experience of the world has to be different than what anyone else has ever came across. Let me say that again: when we insist that our experience of the world has got to be profoundly different than what anyone else has came across, well, it leads to this kind of thinking. Verse eight: Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we're not content. Nothing satisfies us. Listen, once we start to come to grips with the fact that life can be monotonous and boring and meaningless, and we add that to the fact that it's not changing, that's heavy. 5,000 years ago, somebody was sitting in that chair right there, that same chair, same one you're in, somebody else had their butt in it, 5,000 years ago, and they were thinking the same kind of things. I gotta get up. I gotta shovel my coal. I gotta go home, buy some food, buy some clothes, so I can get up and shovel my coal the very next day. What's the point? It's heavy. When we come to grips with that, it can be weary. When we realize that this is what I'm here to do under the sun, keep making laps around, shoveling coal until I die. It it, it can be wearisome, and I'll say it, it can be depressing. So what do we do? What we try to do is shove it from our mind. Push it away so we don't have to think about it. We jump at anything that's shining enough to give us relief. We want distraction to deliver us from the truth. That monotonous truth of reality, we try to escape it and live on a substitute. It doesn't matter if you're a workaholic or an alcoholic. You're running from something. We want to be numbed to reality. But eventually that numbing, it works for a while but it wears off. And when it wears off, we're sitting here in the chair getting ready to get up and shovel our coal for another day. You don't have to think very hard to understand why some people consider drugs or death as a relief. It's not hard to understand. There's a reason why you can watch three seasons of Breaking Bad on Netflix, back to back to back, turn them off, and then say, I'm bored. It's the same reason you can get promoted, get a nice job, get a raise, crank out 2.3 kids with your trophy wife, and then look around and say, what's next? We're never satisfied. The 1990s produced a lot of music that was better off left in the 1990s. However, in 1995, a rapper-theologian operating as Ski-Lo gave us this social commentary. I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl who looked good. I would call her. I wish I had a rabbit and a hat with a bat and a 6'4 Impala. Never idea what he wanted to do with the rabbit. But eventually he opens up. I confess it's a shame when you're living in a city the size of a box and nobody knows your name. You mean I'm so regular? I'm so ordinary? I'm so average? I'm so average that nobody knows my name? Maybe they would if I was I was bigger, I had a better physique. Maybe they would know me if I could play sports or I had a pretty, pretty girlfriend or pretty husband on my arm or I had a big car. Maybe then somebody would know me. I wish, I wish, I wish. <laughs> 30 years before, Mr. Skilo's confession, Mick Jagger comes along and screams, I can't get no satisfaction. Cuz I try and I try and I try and I try. We have appetites. We have lots of appetites. It doesn't matter if it's an appetite for cars or for sex or for dinner. What happens when you feed an appetite? It comes right back. That's what appetites do. Nobody has ever eaten a plate of bacon and eggs, pushed it away, and says, well, that ought to take care of breakfast for life. No. We want second breakfast and elevensies and enough cars and sex to choke a horse. If horses ate cars and sex. You know what I'm saying? What Solomon is saying here is that life, everything under the sun, life as you and I know it, is an appetite that cannot be filled. Whether it's hunger or desire or the ocean, life is like a bucket with a hole in it. It's never going to be filled. There is no satisfaction to be found anywhere down here. A sneak peek in the next week's sermon, Solomon says, trust me, I tried it. I'm richer than you, I'm smarter than you, I'm hornier than you, I tried everything you wish you could try, and at the end of it, it's not the satisfaction that I was hoping but every generation comes along and when we come to grips with this reality, we say, well, we can fix it. We'll work smarter. We'll work harder. We'll progress past it. Evolution has hit its peak with us. We have the solution. Well, confidence comes with ignorance. To this, Solomon says, history really repeats itself. It's all been done before. Nothing under of the sun is truly new. Sometimes people will say, here's something new. But actually, that's old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past. In future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. We're not making progress. Every generation comes along, they drive some laps around the same cul-de-sac, and then they die. So the next generation says, but we're different right? Evolution peaked with us. We are what the world has been waiting for. You're welcome. We're just going to drive faster. So they do. And maybe they make some more laps around the cul-de-sac. Maybe they don't. But then they die. I don't care how, listen, listen, I don't care how fast your car is or how big your car is. One day, you're going to die. And we're going to paint you up. We're going to put you in a box. We're going to put the box in the ground, throw some dirt on top of it, go somewhere and eat potato salad and talk about you until we have to make it to our next big appointment. That's reality. Even when we think we have experienced something new, it's because either, one, we went to public school, and so we don't know history, or two, we're actually entitled enough to think that somehow our experiences, good and bad, are different than what people have been experiencing for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. That is different with us. Those of you who lived through Y2K, remember the big year 2000, how that was going to change everything and be such a big deal? Computers were going to shut down, banks were going to lose our money Toasters were going to rise up and kill us in our sleep Nope, none of that happened January 1st, 2000 was just another day Even something as impressive as landing on the moon The only thing there is to do on the moon is turn around and look back at the earth Now, I'm being facetious, but I'm trying to make a point And it's not that I'm against research or advancement or study and growth. I'm probably addicted to those things. I'm not against them at all. But here's what I'm against. Listen to me. I'm against any of those achievements convincing us that we are so unique that we have arrived at a position in the universe where the fundamental set of problems facing the human heart, our basic existence is somehow different than what's been going on under the sun since the dawn of time. You know what, men? Your dad is insecure too. And his dad had questions of insecurity and so did Neil Armstrong. Men have been asking since Adam, do I have what it takes to make it in the world? You know what, women? Your mom wondered if she had any real value. Your grandma wondered if she was significant or pretty or if she mattered, if she had anything to offer in the world. Was she worth anything? And no amount of trips to the moon is going to change those fundamental insecurities that rest inside of each of us under the sun. To start to wrap this up, let me ask you. You ever hear or see something that you wish you didn't hear? Yeah, this sermon. Ever ever see something you wish you didn't see? I remember the day I found out. Sorry, I'm struggling with a cold here. I remember the day I found out there was no Santa Claus. I started connecting the dots. It wasn't long till I realized there's no Tooth Fairy and there's no Easter Bunny. I was devastated. So much of what I had came to believe. Was gone just like that. The magic was gone. It took my poor wife like a month to get me out of bed and tell me to go back to work. The song wasn't out yet, but I remember when it did come out, Toby Keith described perfectly how I felt that time. I thought, I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. That's exactly what Solomon says next. Wisdom is a wound. Ignorance is bliss because the more I know, the worse it gets. The truth hurts. Wisdom is a wound and it's a wound that is messy and it will bleed as long as we are down here under the sun. Verse 13. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic Existence to the human race. Why is life as we know it meaningless and repetitive and unsatisfying? According to the wisest man who ever lived, because God made it that way. The ESV translates it an unhappy business, NIV says a heavy burden. As unsettling as that sounds, that God is the one who delivered this tragic, unhappy, heavy business, it's unsettling, but I believe it's the key to sorting out this enigma of why things feel so unescapably meaningless down here. Let me ask you, do you ever ask for help when you don't genuinely need it? when I mean, you ever asked someone to carry a box when it is a package that you could throw around in one hand? You ever reach for a dictionary to spell a word you already know how to spell? You ever phone a friend for an answer when the question is as simple as 2 plus 2? For anything like me, those moments, when I got it, I got—I don't need any help, those become the cockiest moments of my existence. And I'll tell you what, a cocky Bill Mase is not a good Bill Mase. It does not result in a good version of me. Remember Adam and Eve? We started with them, we'll end with them. They had no tragic existence in the garden, no heavy burden. Their whole life was one big string of happy business. Did that cause them to draw in close to God with a loving relationship of worship and adoration and service? Hardly. Actually, it sent in the other direction, and it made them think, you know, I think it's time for us to go out into business on our own. Start to launch out into our own business. So they, they flipped God the finger that he made, and they launched out into oblivion. It cost them dearly. Talk about wisdom being a wound. That knowledge that they got from eating that fruit, that truth cost them severely. The result, this is what it cost them. Everything going on under the sun, really, it is all meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. What is wrong cannot be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. Solomon's telling us there in verse 15, what we all know to be true, but we spend our lives pretending that it's not. The past cannot be changed. There's no use in worrying about how you might have done things differently. It's done. It's done. can't be recovered. Under the sun is that third phrase that we'll, we'll, we'll return to over and over again. Solomon uses it 29 times to refer to life down here on earth worldly speaking a human point of view as you and i know it and solomon is telling us that life as you and i know it down here offers no hope no resolution to how meaningless and monotonous our existence is down here there's no glimmer of hope there's no light at the end of the tunnel down here to make us feel better about where we are now where we're going or anything in our past In fact, the more we find out, it just becomes this big anchor that we have to drag around as we drive our laps around the cul-de-sac. That's how things are under the sun with no hope in sight. But what about over the sun? Solomon spent his entire life feasting on everything under the sun, and at the end of his life, he realizes the key to enjoying anything under the sun is to view it from the other side. Listen to me, please. I'm not saying we've resolved everything today. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying, learn from the memoirs of an old man who achieved everything we wished we could achieve. He'll prove it next week. And listen to what he has to say. Everything down here is meaningless. But over the sun, there might be something else to consider. Paul tells the church in Corinth, So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. Stop for a minute and confess. I'm not always strong or immovable or enthusiastic. Solomon's fears and insecurities are my fears and insecurities. I wonder, like Solomon did, is there any point? Am I wasting my time? Here, with what comes next, Is there any value to this why am i doing this i don't see any of the fruit that i would like to see is there any progress but you know what at the end of the day i believe in heaven i really do i believe there are more reasons to accept the god of the bible and believe in the reality of heaven than there are reasons not to accept it i think the math is in the favor of christianity but I still, I still wonder, is there life before death? And for that reason, the last sentence of this verse intrigues me. Nothing you ever do for the Lord is useless. Nothing? You mean if I follow this, if I flesh this out, that despite my weaknesses and my insecurities and my history, my shoot, my present, the stuff I'm worried about now, that somehow my My work can produce something that is not meaningless or vain? If you don't have a view of the world that gives you some type of deep contentment, blessed assurance, if you don't have a view of the world that gives you meaningful answers to these questions that Solomon raised, may I suggest, may I ask, plead that you stick with this as we follow this book because I think Ecclesiastes is the book for you. It leads us to a God who says this. The thief comes only to kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Amen.